0: weeks, we're going to be looking at chapters 24 and 25, the last little section or last little body of teaching that Jesus offers, in Matthew's record anyway, before we come to the crucifixion account. And this uh, chapters 24 and 25 uh, are, are based on the topic or the subject of the return of Christ, uh, the end of the world. Both of those things go together. Now, I wonder if, uh, even as we gather, just to think about this, as we start this section, do you ever think that the world is going to end? Is that a prospect that you've considered? Uh, Most people, whenever they hear a question like that, they kind of scoff and think, oh, come on. They laugh it off as alarmist and say, tomorrow's gonna be another day just like today was. But to others, the idea isn't actually that ridiculous. I mean, take, for example, the doomsday clock which proves it in a sense. You've heard of the doomsday clock, I'm assuming. It's not really a clock, of course. It's it's more of a barometer, actually, a barometer of global atmosphere for instability and danger. And the closer you get to midnight, it doesn't tick down over time, of course. It can go back the way. But the closer you get to midnight, the closer you get to humanity's annihilation. I felt like I had to say it with that dramatic effect. But also, the closer you get to midnight, the more the world should freak out, the more the world should actually stop and do something about the the factors that are edging us closer closer to cataclysm and destruction. Interestingly, in January this year, the clock was moved for the first time in a few years. It's now two and a half minutes to midnight The closest we've been to the end of the world since 1953, when the US tested the hydrogen bomb. The reason for the change? Donald Trump. (laughs) Not just Donald Trump, but his tweets were mentioned as a major factor in global unrest, political global unrest, but also in missile testing in North Korea. Lots of different factors are making Those, the council, who set the time on the clock to think we're closer this year to the end of the world than we were before. So the notion, the idea, it's not that ridiculous. And of course, for Christians, it's definitely not ridiculous. We look at passages like 2 Peter 3, which state explicitly the Lord Jesus Christ is gonna come back and it will be a day of blistering destruction, of, of, refining fire, the undoing of the elements of everything from subatomic particles to interstellar space is going to be the first stage in the renewing of all things when Christ brings in the new heaven and new earth. Do you believe that? Now, Matthew 24 and 25 are Jesus' most um, lengthiest teaching on the subject of the end and what it's going to be like. And it and in a sense, Matthew 24 and 25 act a little bit like the doomsday clock for us, containing both warnings and descriptions of the, the potential earth-shattering events that will accompany the return of Jesus Christ. And we're going to look at it over the next few weeks. And let me be honest up front, right? It's tricky. Um, I've, I have read probably three or four times as much for this sermon as I would do in a normal week I'm not saying that to boast I'm just showing you that there is a, there is quite extensive debate over these passages they contain it's not the the understanding of the actual events is not that tricky but the understanding of the sequence of events Trying to figure out when Jesus is talking about things that happened in the past, things that are happening now, and things that will happen in the future, is actually a very difficult thing to ascertain. And if you have any questions about it, feel free to email me about it afterwards. But don't ask me at the door, because then I'll not get to speak to anyone else. And I, and so email me about it, and I'll delete it. Um, I, won't, I won't delete it. I'll, I'll read it, and then I'll delete it. Um, <laughs> But it's tricky. I mean, it's about the subject of things like the millennium. Now, three of you are like, oh, this is interesting. Others are just thinking, what has this got to do with a Robbie Williams song? I don't quite understand what's going on. Bear with me. We'll read the passage. We're going to look at it over the next few weeks. And let's pray before we read Matthew 24, shall we? Father, the Apostle Peter tells us uh, later on in that chapter of 2 Peter 3 that some of the things that we read in your word are hard to understand. And we thank you that as we engage with them, you stimulate us to wholesome thinking, to be thinking about the things that our minds should be set on. But help us as we study these passages uh, to be noble for me in its presentation, uh, noble as listeners in testing what is said holding on to the good, and we ask for your help in this. It's great to know that your spirit gives us discernment in these matters, and we praise you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. So Matthew 24, we're just going to read up to verse 28 today. So Jesus left the temple. Remember, he's just finished arguing with the religious leaders there, pronounced judgment on them, and we read Jesus left the temple. This is three days before his crucifixion. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him and to call his attention to its buildings. "'Do you see these things?' he asked. "'Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down.' Well, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. "'Tell us,' they said, "'when will this happen? "'And what will be the sign of your coming "'at the end and the end of the age?' And Jesus answered, Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name claiming, I am the Messiah, and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you're not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, the kingdom, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All of these are the beginnings of birth pains. Then you'll be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you'll be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony To all nations, and then the end will come. So, when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or the Sabbath, for then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened." At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it, for false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you in advance. So if anyone tells you, there he is, out in the desert, do not go out, or here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. Okay, this section we're looking at today is formed in response to two questions, uh, two questions that we see in verse 3 in our passage. But it's helpful to understand why Jesus, why they ask these questions, the disciples. Well, remember that at the end of chapter 3, as I said, Jesus has pronounced Judgment on the religious leaders for their hypocrisy. But he also made a bold statement about a certain house. He said, Look, your house is left to you desolate. What house is he talking about? The temple. Now you might say, Well, that's odd. He calls it your house, but doesn't the Bible really say that it's God's house? Well, yes, that is absolutely right. But this is the point I think that Jesus is making. Not anymore. It's desolate. It's empty. Jesus is pronouncing it as being derelict. The for sale sign is up. The resident has moved out. God doesn't live there anymore. There's a strong sense in which you even think that as Jesus departs from the temple, God's presence goes with him. Now, this is what he says to the religious leaders. It's then your house is left to you desolate. He's very particular about that. Your house, it's yours. The squatters have ruined it. The squatters can have it. What do we read next? In chapter 24, verse 1, the disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. In other words, the temple and its surrounding buildings. Now, I don't want you to think that they're just being tourists. They're not walking around with their Canon cameras like, whoa, look at that building. That is terrific. No, they've been in Jerusalem, no doubt, many times before for festivals. Uh, and to be fair, you know, they're not being tourists, and it's not that the building's not stunning. In fact, it is. This isn't the temple, of course, that Solomon built that was uh, devastated in the exile. Uh, this is the new temple that took 46 years to be built, uh, a, a while previous to this point here, built by Herod. So it's the second temple. And it was magnificent. I mean, it was built with white marble stones that were colossal. They were beautiful in themselves, so was the report. But they were decorated with gold. And they were huge. 35 feet by 11 feet by 17 feet. That is huge. I wish I had actually got some string out and set that out so you could actually see it here. It is is—it is big, okay? But Jesus Say, it's almost like their questions are, are like a check, did Jesus just really just say that your house is left to you desolate? This, this temple, which is the epicenter of the worship of God in all things Jewish, is just is derelict. Now, that would make them concerned in a sense, because that makes them think right back to the Babylonian exile in the time before, the first temple and its absolute destruction. And that would have sent shivers down their spine. And Jesus says something that's really devastating to their ears. The temple is not only desolate, it's actually going to be destroyed. Verse 2, not one stone, not one of these gigantic 35 by 11 by 17 foot stones will be left in another. And every one, he says, he's very specific, every one will be thrown down. Now that must have absolutely blown their minds to hear that. What could cause such a gigantic seemingly immovable structure to be pulled apart like Lego bricks in the hands of a one-year-old. And in the 15 minutes or so that it takes from them to walk from this departure point of the temple to the Mount of Olives that overlooks the temple, they ask Jesus a couple of questions. When will this destruction happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age. So they reckon that whatever's going to happen to Jerusalem must be, of, must be so cataclysmic that it, that it must be round about the time that Jesus has already talked about of his return when he's promised. The kind of events that are described in 2 Peter chapter 3. He talked about that earlier, Matthew chapter 13, and a couple of other parables as well. So these verses in verses 4 to 28 are basically Jesus' responses. Jesus' response to these two questions, and he takes them in reverse order. And the two points that we're going to look at are signs of the times, verses 4 to 14, and times of destruction, verses 15 to 28. Those are the two main points. So let's look at verses 4 to 14 first, signs of the times. So the disciples ask what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? How will we know when you're coming back? How do we know when the world is going to end? And in verses 4 to 14, Jesus says, he talks about five things that will characterize life before the end. In fact, these are five things that characterize what life will be like between his first and second coming, between his ascension to heaven, to God's right hand, and in the past, and in the future, his return in great power and glory. But the interesting thing about these verses is that I think the underlying message that he communicates to them concerning these signs is that these things are going to happen, but they're not the end. They're not the end. Let's look at it. Verses 4 and 5, you've got this description of false messiahs. Pretenders, messianic pretenders. And history is not, oh, the history is not short of examples of those who've, who've been messianic phonies. They're, the, they're almost like the religious equivalent of black market goods. They come along, whatever they sell you, it's not the real thing. They're fakes, no matter how convincing they can be. There were plenty around in Jesus' day. You see a couple of them in the book of Acts. There are plenty around in our day. You only have to turn on the God channel and you've got a a bunch of them. But some self-proclaimed messiahs are long forgotten. But others, in fact, have built world religions and are not forgotten. So that happens. There's a sign of the times, if you like. Verses 6 and 7 gives us a second one. Jesus talks about wars and rumors of wars. Conflict is constant, isn't it? We know that full and well. But again, throughout the ages, war has been threatened and war has been waged in the name of all sorts of things, in the name of defense, and acts of aggression, and acts of terrorism, and so on. And the political landscape to us even today does look vulnerable, what with Trump's tweets and missile testing in North Korea and Brexit, all these things, everyone's looking for these signs of the times. But nowhere is that truer than even in the events of the Middle East. These are things that can concern Christians and create a lot of confusion. The third thing he mentions in verses 7 and 8 are natural disasters. These are signs that our world is broken. These are the the creation groaning at the effects of the curse as described in Romans chapter 8. And how often in the past few years have we highlighted famine relief or emergency appeal to help Relieve suffering caused by natural disaster, even through our church. It happens all the time. They are common, and they have been throughout the centuries, from the time Jesus ascended. And they will be until the time Jesus returns in great power and glory. The fourth thing, verses 9 to 11, the persecution of Christians. You only need to read the book of Acts to see this happen, don't you? The death of the first martyr, Stephen. And how it caused the church there in Jerusalem to be spread and yet how God used that. And yet even towards the ends of Acts, you see all these people as they go out to these different countries, different nations, different cities. Yet the persecution exists everywhere, not just in Israel. It's all over the world. We see it today. It's reported, of course, that, that more Christians have been persecuted and martyred in the last century than all the 19 centuries that have gone before. The fifth thing, in verses 12 to 13, you've got this report of wickedness increasing and love for God growing cold. It seems that people who are so caught up in sinful practice will find their love for the Lord God growing cold. It's not a concern for them. And we might say, well, that's true in our nation, a land that used to be the land of the book. Well, no more. No more. No more. What do you think when you see all these things happening? How do you read Matthew 24, 4 to 14? Do you read these and think, "Wow, these are the indicators, these are the signs of the times, must be soon? It's interesting. I think most people fall into one of two camps here. There are those who are kind of slightly obsessive about the signs of the times. You know, you see things like the Twin Towers fall and the Bible Prophecy Boys flood YouTube with their conspiracies and their videos. They're predicting, they're throwing out dates left, right, and center. They do a Harold camping. I'll talk about him next week just to, yeah, I'll probably talk about him next week. Restrain yourself. Um, People are setting dates. Jesus says, no one knows. Don't ever listen to anyone who says in about 26 and a half years, that's when Jesus is coming back. Well, we can be... Too caught up in those kind of conspiracies. Or a famine hits Ethiopia 30 years ago and people are saying Jesus is going to return in 10 years. Friends, don't do that. Because Jesus is going to go on to say, as I just said, you cannot know. And he's going to talk about parables, about thieves and about the surprising, the fact that the return of Jesus Christ is going to be surprising. Nobody knew. They couldn't tell exactly what time or else they would have been perfectly ready. Now, I think Jesus highlights these five things not to give us a checklist for predicting the return of Jesus, but to pastor us, to care for us. I think to help his followers cope with things that might make us think, this is it, this is it. But none of these things are serious indicators that it's one minute to midnight, if you like. So, what is it about? Well, I think I want to hook these five things on one key illustration for us in this section, birth pains. Verse 8, these things are the beginnings of birth pains. I think that's a great illustration to use. I remember the first time we experienced labor pains. It started off, I know I used the word we, I shouldn't have. It's a, started off, you know, with anyone's labor, it starts off fairly light. I mean, you don't get the first niggle and then call for an ambulance. You, you take some paracetamol, you put on your TENS machine, and you breathe deeply. I'm not belittling this at any stage, you understand, ladies, okay? Just this is what you do. Now, fast forward a few hours, and the pain increases. Okay, the contractions become a little bit more severe, and the thing about these contractions is that over a period of time, they kind of they, they increase in their intensity and then they abate. Uh, they increase in their intensity and then they abate, and then there's a length of time between them as well. Um, and gradually over time, that can get shorter, of course, but eventually you get to a point where The only word that you can cry out is epidural. (laughs) And, you know, it it just becomes so severe and so intense that you are convinced that this is it. Now, sometimes, you know, speaking from experience, contractions can be... I'm on dangerous territory here. (laughs) But bear with me. It's such a useful illustration. There were times when I watched a contraction and I was like, man alive, it's got to be it this time. But no, there were a couple of hours still to go. You know, there are time, I think there are times when you're convinced this is it, but not yet. Now, what I think Jesus is saying to us here is the world has been having contractions ever since Jesus ascended to heaven. Wars and rumors of wars, persecution of Christians, These events ought not to alarm us. These are the things that are happening that mark out what time is like. This characterizes life following Jesus between the first and the second coming. And they ought not to alarm us, but I think what Jesus says, it encourages us to do two things in particular. I think two things, first of all, is persevere. I never thought I'd actually use this in a sermon as a, as a point, but keep calm and carry on is the order of the day. Keep calm, carry on. Jesus says, when you experience the distress of deception by false teachers, wars, natural disasters, persecution, and people backsliding, you'll be tempted to think, surely this is it. It's arrival time. But Jesus says, these are just the, uh he doesn't say these are birth pains. Notice what he says. These are the Beginnings of birth pains. So you hear of someone claiming the Messiah has come. Don't be alarmed. Verse 4, watch out that no one deceives you, Jesus says. He's not saying, get your eyes on the, on the sky to see what's happening. That's kind of like what the Thessalonians were doing. The Th- I love the Thessalonians. They are so enthralled about the return of Jesus Christ. It's like they've sold all their they've become to believe in Jesus. They know that he's coming back. They believe it's utterly imminent. And they've sold all their stuff at jumble sales. They're sitting on deck tiers in their front lawn just watching the sky. And Paul's like, Good on you for your enthusiasm, but there's work to be done. Don't be idle. There's the gospel to spread. I think some of the same message comes through here. Watch out that no one deceives you. You hear of wars and rumors of wars. What does it say in verse 6? Jesus says. Don't be alarmed. The end is still to come. The end is still to come. Don't be alarmed. Just make sure that you keep going until the end actually comes, and by doing so, by persevering in that way, you'll be saved. So he's being pastoral here. The second application in this, keep calm and carry on, is preach the gospel. Preach the gospel, and don't be so distracted by other things that it takes away from the main task that we are given to do. Preach the gospel. And it's interesting, there's only one thing in verses 4 to 14 that really, actually marks the end of the world, and what is it? Well, the gospel of the kingdom will be preached, in the whole world, as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So God has promised in these distressing times, none of the distressing events or experiences of verses 4 to 13 should stop the spread of the gospel. And I wonder if that's our concern. Is that our concern? Is that, is that our focus in these hard times? I think it's important to encourage us to persevere. It's important to encourage us to keep on spreading the gospel, isn't it? Because surely these five signs of the times, if you like, that Jesus has shared with us are are the very things that might make believers like us kind of shrink back. Oh, man, if I share the gospel, like, I could be in trouble at work. I mean, when you think about persecution for us, right, it's really tame compared to what brothers and sisters are experiencing in places like Eritrea, South Sudan, we are an anomaly right now. We have such unbelievable freedom. It's convicting how little we share. And surely it reveals the idolatry of our hearts, of wanting to be loved and liked, that we, fearing the displeasure of others towards us, we keep our mouths shut. And in so doing, become complicit in their lostness. I find this terribly convicting. This is what we must be about. Even though this is what life is characterized by in these times, we ought to care about all these things. Persecuted Christians, disaster relief, all these kind of things. Absolutely. But let's not get so caught up in thinking, this is it. It's the beginning of birth pains. And Jesus says, the end is not yet. It's still to come. We'll get to that next week, by the way. And that's his response to the first quest, uh, to their se- second question. And then he, this, the first question that the disciples asked had, "When will this destruction happen?" So he's talking specifically here about Jerusalem then, And he answers this in verses 15 to 28. And in verse 15, Jesus changes the topic, really amazingly predicts what I would argue is the destruction of Jerusalem 37 years before it actually happened. Time for a history lesson. Take a deep breath. In AD 67, Jerusalem was besieged by Roman armies, led by the general at that time Vespasian, and after him, his son Titus, because Vespasian went on to become emperor. There had been a revolt uh, prior to this over taxation, which, remember, from a few weeks ago was a hot topic in the day. Roman had enough of Jerusalem's obstinacy, and they decided to come down with a heavy hand. So they waited until they started to build barracks around the city. They started to build up their forces around the city. And it was a bit suspicious to the people in Jerusalem, but they went about their daily life. But the Romans waited until the city's population swelled from its usual 200,000 to about 1 or 1.1 million on the occasion of Passover week. And Jewish historian Josephus, Christian historian Eusebius, and Roman historian Tacitus, all tell the same terrible tales of how General Titus, like some kind of boa constrictor, squeezed the life out of Jerusalem's inhabitants, suffocating them by starvation over a period of three years. Running out of crosses to execute those who tried to escape. And these historians tell the kind of stories that I'm not even comfortable talking about in a room full of adults, never mind being aware that there are children present. It's disgusting. It is actually horrific. I don't think I've read many historical accounts and actually felt physically sick at what I read, at what the people turned to in Jerusalem's walls, and what the Romans did to them when, in AD 70, they breached the walls. Barbaric is too soft a word. But the detail of what happened when the walls were finally breached in AD 17 Temple ransacked is actually remarkable. The Romans devastated everything. Of course, they set off for the temple and they set it on fire at Titus's request and used various means to fuel the flames. Let the reader understand. But the heat became so intense that these massive stones that I talked about that were overlaid with, with pure golds, the gold melted and the, 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 the gold ran down between the cracks of the stones. And guess what Titus ordered? He ordered that all the gold should be retrieved because that was his plunder. He was going to put it on the arch that he built in Rome to testify to this immense conquest, which, by the way, you can see today. And his decree? Dig it up. Not one stone left on another. So Jesus' words were fulfilled amazingly. In each of these three historical accounts by Eusebius, Josephus, and Tacitus, One of the things to note is that most of the Christians emerged unscathed. Why? They got out before the walls and the gates were barricaded. They saw the Roman armies coming. They saw them gathering at the gates and they got out. It's almost like they remembered Jesus' words to run and to flee for their lives as a history and here's the Bible lesson. In verse 15, we read of this abomination that causes desolation. What is that? Well, it's a phrase that's used to describe in the book of Daniel, a Greek ruler called Antiochus Epiphanes, who in 168 BC set up an altar to Zeus in the holy place of the temple and sacrificed a pig on it. And what Jesus is doing here is saying that when they see another ruthless siege, like Antiochus' siege, set up, and when you can expect that temple to be profaned again, when you see these things happen, get out. And verses 16 to 20 say, if you're on the roof or in the field, don't go back to pack your suitcase, forget the photos, you know, run across the rooftops, get out and pray that nothing, not not the Sabbath or whatever or winter will create an obstacle for your escape because you're going to need to run fast. And that's true. That's what happened. The tricky thing about that passage is that it says, Jesus says, there will be great distress unequaled from the beginning of the world until now. Now, that is a hard text. What is it? Is it? Is that really the hardest thing? Now, this, that's the kind of text that makes people think, do you know what? This is not talking about Jerusalem in AD 70. It's talking about Jerusalem to come. It's talking about this time when, when, when Jerusalem will be reestablished and when the Temple Mount will be reclaimed. There's a mosque on it just now. But there's a day coming when it will be reclaimed and that temple will be built and then all of these things that Jesus is talking about will happen to it. And that's when, of course, when that happens, that's the event that will be unequaled from the beginning of time until whenever. But that's a tricky one, in a sense, because actually it's... Jesus is said to return after that. And if it is AD 70, as I'm arguing, then what what does it actually mean to say great distress unequal from the beginning of the world until now? I mean, that's hard. Surely the Holocaust was worse? I mean, is AD 70 really more brutal than Rwanda? Well, that's the kind of question that makes people think this points forward, but I think it is specific to Jerusalem Distress unequaled from the beginning of the world, never to be equaled again. And I think it's down to the fact that this great contraction of the whole nation into one city. The fact that despite the Christians, nobody got out besides just under 100,000 people who were taken into slavery, either to serve in Rome or for gladiatorial sport. Many would argue that it was unequaled in the sense that nowhere in history have we seen such decimation of a people with so few survivors. It's up to you. I can send you the links. You can read and see what you think. See what you think. But at this event, of course, Another indication I feel which points back towards an historical event is that in verses 23 to 26, opportunistic phonies have another go at duping the elect, about duping God's people. But Jesus, returning to the subject of his return and the end of the age, says, don't go out, no matter how convincing some of them might seem. Why? That's because of what he says in verse 27 and 28. Look with me. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible, and even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather. In other words, the return of Christ will be something that is completely unmistakable. It is unmissable. The best lightning storm I have ever seen was seen from a hotel in Bangkok years ago. It was such a humid and cloudy night, and this lightning just lit up the entire city, and it's a huge city. But I have never seen lightning like this before, which literally did just begin at one end of the sky and zigzag its way across to the other end of the sky. And I just thought, there's no way that there's just the people in this hotel see that. No way that just the people in this city see that. Everybody's seeing that, and that's the point Jesus is making. You're not going to miss the return of Christ. It is going to be an event of such, the coming that Peter talks about, of great power and glory, that's what it's going to be like. And indeed, there are other indicators similar to this, vultures circling a carcass. They're scavengers, of course. They don't kill these animals. Something else has made the kill. And while it has its share, its fill of the meal, they wait in the sky. And just as you can pinpoint the GPS of a dead deer, By identifying the signs of the vulture in the sky, Jesus says, you will to identify the sign of my coming. It's as unmissable as vultures circling a carcass or lightning zigzagging across the sky. Now, you might think, well, if that's your interpretation, what do we make of this? Jesus predicted the fall of Jerusalem way before it happened. My encouragement for us, brothers and sisters, is to believe that it happened, and more than that, to take him at his word. Who do you know who has predicted something like that, and to see it fulfilled within the generation that he talks about in verses 32 to 35, with such accuracy? Doesn't it make you want to read more of his words? What else did he say? If he got that right? It's another reason to take him at his words. And look what he said in verse 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So this temple, these colossal stones will pass away. We'll hold a funeral for it. People will grieve over it, but you'll never hold a funeral for my words. They're going to stand the test of time. They're going to stand the test of the end times and going on into forever as a testimony of the truth of the word that came from Jesus Christ who claim to be the son of God. And if you're here today, you're not a Christian. You're thinking, these people are a bit wacky. This, 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 this is interesting stuff. It is. It's absolutely fascinating. But I want you to see that what Jesus says here and what happened in AD 70 caused you, really, they put the onus of responsibility on you to think, what else did he say? If he got that right, is he right about other things? Is he right about God's love for us being demonstrated in his coming? Is he right about the fact that eternal life is in his hands and that we can believe in him? Is he right when he said in John 3, 17 that God did not send him into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him? Take him at his word, friends. Turn from your sin. Believe the gospel. This, Jesus Christ, And his words is no shaky foundation. His words provide a foundation of stones that will never be upturned, never dug up. It endures forever. And my appeal to you today is believe in him. The other thing that he predicted that happened precisely as he said it, of course, was his cross. Throughout his ministry, throughout his life, he repeatedly staked his whole ministry, the believability of Jesus on this, that he's going to lay his life down, he's going to be delivered over to the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and he's going to be crucified, and three days later he'll return. How? By being raised from the dead. And God declared his identity in doing so and told us that the death he died on the cross... That death he died for sin was for us. And that through sharing in his resurrection hope, indeed looking forward to the day in the future when we too will all be raised, gives us great confidence. He calls us to repent of our sin. Believe him. Take him at his word. Take him at his unbreakable never passing away words. His words, more life-giving, more enduring, more trustworthy, more magnificent than anything you'll ever hear. Brothers and sisters, God's words are always to be believed. Even as he describes the end times, even as he describes the signs of the times that characterize before, the life between his comings. The call for us today, according to the Lord Jesus Christ, I believe is persevere, keep going, endure in godliness in our life together and spread the gospel. Let other people know before it's too late, and we'll get to that next week. Let's pray together.